figure that today of all days I should probably be fairly theologically sound. I hope I've been fairly theologically sound most days. Um, But we are going to do a little bit of work in the Scriptures today around this question of prayer. Pray and don't give up. Pray, don't lose heart, as one uh, translation says. And Jesus tells this story to encourage us in something that is hard because life is hard. And life is confusing at times. And life is draining and mysterious at other times. In fact, over this last week, there's been a certain, I felt some weariness and heaviness and some at times discouragement seeing the struggles in people's lives. Phyllis Brown died this week. And I don't know, some of you will know Phyllis really well as a, a stalwart, a faithful servant and member of this community. We'll be having a, a celebration of lifetime for her a week on Tuesday, I think about 1.30 in the afternoon, but details of that will be forthcoming. And that's a part of life. <clears throat> I mentioned recently... Um, a good friend of mine lost his wife to a battle, about an 18-month can- battle with cancer, and her memorial service was this week. And it's touched something in me again, just making that sort of connection with him in his struggle. My daughter just got back from England visiting her friend who's going through treatment for brain cancer. And uh, a mom who's incapable of being attentive to her two small children. Life is a struggle. I've got a son-in-law who's trying to find a way forward in his career and this year's a kind of make-or-break year and there's no certainty that he'll have a job in a year. And I've got two grandchildren in that family. We feel the struggle and we pray. Life has its trials. Life has many uncertain outcomes. And when it comes to prayer, there's a certain degree of mystery. Does God answer prayer? How does he answer prayer? How does he balance this sense of his sovereignty and our desires and our wills and the reality, as we've sung about and reflected on, of evil and the opposition to the purposes of God? We cannot understand or explain everything, but I think there are things that God has given us that he wants us to hold on to and to find security and hope in. Firstly, that we would have faith, I think, in a prayer-loving God. I put this quote from Andrew Murray. Some of you will know of his writings. Great man of prayer. Um, Faith in a prayer-loving God will make a prayer-loving Christian. I like that. God loves prayer because he loves you. And when you pray, you're communicating. You're being attentive to, hopefully. You're expressing a relationship Now, Jesus uses this example of this kind of bizarre situation in a certain town. It's a bit like once upon a time. But he's he's going to an extreme to make a point, and he's describing this lazy, selfish, unjust, uncaring judge. And by the way, God is not like this. But in order to demonstrate how good God is, he talks about this really self-centered judge who even answers the prayers of the pleas of the widow who comes to him. Earlier in this same Gospel in Luke, uh, when Jesus is praying to the Father, and this is why I love to be around people who pray, because something is caught and, and I think something is kindled in terms of a desire 
to pray, to connect with God in a similar way. That's what happened early in my Christian life. And still today, I love to be around people who pray earnestly from the heart. But they, the disciples see Jesus, they ask teachers to pray, Lord. And so he teaches them, doesn't he? That's where we have the Lord's Prayer. And at the end of that little narrative, he says something quite similar to this story. He says, if you then, you fathers, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Again, that same kind of contrast. And this is why Jesus fundamentally came to reveal the nature of the Father, which is why he says, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because everything I do is an expression of the Father's will and the Father's reality. And he came that we would have relationship with the Father to make that possible. By him we have access to the Father, Paul says, through the one Spirit who has been given. And in our reading even from Jeremiah, to which as Sally rightly said, there's a lot in there. There's a lot to take in. But fundamentally in this is again the Father's heart for restoration of relationship with his people, Israel, who have gone astray, who have resisted the old covenant, who have rebelled against his ways. And yet the Lord says to them, I will make a new covenant with their ancestors. They broke my old one, though I was a husband to them. Isn't that wondrous? In the Old Testament, there we have the imagery of the bride as the people and God as the husband or the bridegroom. It's a relationship of tenderness, of intimacy. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Again, the, the Lord's yearning for relationship, for connection, for communication. And prayer is the fundamental expression of that. That's why God loves a prayer-loving Christian. Because we're his children. I came up with this quote from, it's not on the screen here, but uh, Larry Crabb said this, and I think it speaks some truth. Moving through our emotional struggles and handling relationships well require that we tap into the good urges within us to strengthen and release them. You have some good urges. The new covenant is, I believe, the most neglected and most pivotal doctrine in shaping our approach to personal growth and to connected relationships. We are now defined by something terrific. No matter how severely we have been hurt or how badly we fail, at any moment we have something wonderful and powerful to give to others and to release in ourselves. This is why we gather around a table to remind ourselves of the new covenant in his blood which was shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins, for the restoration of relationship and ultimately for the outpouring of God himself into our hearts through the Holy Spirit the writing of his will and his ways upon our heart. You see, he gives us a new heart and a new start. But more than anything, he gives us a spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. And we hear his voice. And it's all gift. 
But we grow in faith also through perseverance. <clears throat> we kind of live in the buy now, pay later culture, don't we? That was kind of true about a generation ago. Well, it's even more true now. We want it and we want it now. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. We want it, whatever the cost. We'll go into debt now, as people, as families, as communities, as nations, and let somebody else worry about it later. What happened to saving up and waiting? Does anyone remember that? Back in the day, <laughs> when uh, it wasn't that easy, and you waited and waited and hoped. They say that delayed gratification, nurtured in children, will stand them in good stead for life. Children who learn to wait, to put aside the craving and the yearning, and not have immediately, are set up for success in life, much more so than the child who takes and has immediately. How about you? How do you cope with that? I've been thinking a lot about houses recently, because um, we'll be looking for one. And it reminds me of we've, we've moved a few times, and that's included looking for houses. And I remember when we first came to the States, we were looking for a house in Little Rock and put our eyes on something and really wanted it and lost it. And you know, you get all those nice encouraging, well, I'm sure God has something better for you. Don't want to hear it. I lost something. I really want it. <laughs> did he? Of course he did. did I? Could I hear it? Not a chance. And that's that same reflection, isn't it? We want it, and we want it now. And sometimes there's a need to wait, and God has purpose on that, even in our prayers. The reality is, as we also sang, we are part of a kingdom that is in conflict with the kingdom of this world. There's a story in, uh, in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10, where Daniel, who's living at a time when all had gone astray, the people had been led into captivity. They were no longer living in the land. They couldn't access the temple, so they couldn't access the presence of God. In fact, their very sense of identity and livelihood and well-being had been taken from them. And they're living in a strange land. How can the Lord's people sing the Lord's song in a strange land? cries the psalmist. And Daniel lived in that era. And so he he fasts for 21 days and prays. And nothing seems to happen. And we hear this. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now, we're not talking here about physical, literal kings and princes. We're talking about spiritual forces of evil, of wickedness, of Michael, the great archangel. But the response to the prayer was immediate. 21 days ago, I set out, but I've been resisted. Even the angelic forces get resisted. What makes us think we won't be? Or that we're not participating in the same battle? But to persevere in prayer is to persevere in the reality that the battle doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the Lord. And He has promised to fight it. We don't have to. We can't. We don't have the power. 
but he does. For greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So we grow in our faith as we persevere and we overcome through a faith in a God of justice. A God who is a loving God, but he is a just God. Jesus said, God will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones. Don't doubt it. But his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night, will he keep putting them off? I tell you. Remember, he's not like the self-centered, nasty judge. He's the good father. He will see that they get justice and quickly. God is always a God of justice, a righting of the wrongs. And it's very appropriate that when we've been hurt, when we are up against evil, when we are abused, that there should be a crier for justice to be done. Because we're holding on to this promise that Jesus himself spoke about. God would write that for us. Regularly, hopefully, you pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. That's that prayer that Jesus taught us in response to seeing how he prayed. You see, he prayed like that. Because he understood the reality of kingdoms in conflict. There was a kingdom of God that was coming. But even at the very foundation of his life, the kingdoms of this world wanted to destroy him. And so thousands of babies were killed. It's a terrible, terrible toll on humankind. And there's mystery in that. But if we jump to the back of the book, I, once read a, I think I read, a, read about somebody who would always read the back page of a novel when he started reading a book. I thought it was a bit bizarre. I said, well, just in case something happened to me, I died before I got to the end. I know at least how it ended. Well, we've been given the end of the story in the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, as the seals are opened, the portray, the, 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 the fulfilling of the purposes of God, we read this. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. The, here's the evil. Here's the reality of evil against the purposes of God. Because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. There's a perseverance. There's a looking to God for deliverance who doesn't bring it in this life for them. But what was their cry? They called out in a loud voice, How long? How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Is it appropriate to pray like that? These are not prayers of people upon the earth. These are prayers of the saints in heaven, complete. The redeemed. And it's not ultimately about them. It's about the honor and the glory of God and the coming of his kingdom and his righteousness and the final removal of evil from creation. This is the heart of this meal. It's a celebration of the victory of Christ. The victory over principalities and powers. It seems bizarre to us that dying upon a cross as a criminal with great shame and tremendous pain would be an expression of victory. But it was. Because it was a yielding to the Father's will. 
and it was an absorbing and taking upon himself the sin of humankind. We don't understand that. But such is the love of God and the need for justice that somehow in that reality we can be beneficiaries of his goodness. Paul says this, do not take revenge. Remember, the battle belongs to the Lord. This is not a personal thing. This is not for you to get your own back. Do not do that, he says, dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, what are we to do? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is to say, you cannot win this battle. And when we engage in seeking revenge, nobody wins. But we're invited to walk a, a, a higher path. It's the path that Jesus walked. Because he left it to God too. And the victory came through surrender and yielding. And the giving of forgiveness. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I hope at some stage you felt like you've got heaping coals on your head. Because we are all beneficiaries of grace and mercy in the face of our evil. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And vengeance is a balancing of the scales, a righting of the wrongs. It's not enforced by us. I love the story of, well, I love the story of David. There's so many great stories in the Bible. Have you found that? I really encourage you. But here's David. He's been anointed king as a young man. Well, he's really a boy. And the promise is given that he's going to sit on the throne, and yet here he is serving the current king, Saul, who's trying to kill him. He's literally throwing spears at him while David plays away on the banjo. How about that, Carol? Oh, she's not in the room, is she? Just as well. And then later, David and his, uh, sorry, Saul and his army is out trying to find David to kill him. And David has an opportunity as Saul creeps into the cave to relieve himself. It's wonderfully earthy, real stuff, isn't it? And David, at the urging of his men, could have put him away then and there. But he said, I will not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. That is extraordinary. That is delayed gratification at its greatest. That is what the Father loved in David, and he will love in you too. Yes, David fought against the enemies of Israel, but this was not a personal battle. He was leading the armies of the Lord against the enemies of God. And as I was reminded when I went to Argentina and went to almost prison, one of the worst prisons. I haven't been to many prisons, but man, that was terrible. But met a church there and a pastor who preached a sermon. And his, his title was, We're an army that marches on our knees. Never forgotten it. One of the most striking experiences of my life. An army that marches on our knees. 
And yet we cry out to God like the souls of those martyred for their faith. Lord, avenge our blood. Right the wrong. Even David, there are some Psalms that are pretty hard to read. They're called the imprecatory Psalms. It's a big word, which, which is really just a cry for justice. Psalm 69 is one of these. Goodness me, you should read the whole Psalm, but a few verses say, Pour out your wrath on them, Lord. Let your fierce anger overtake them. These are his enemies. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. This is not an evangelism strategy. But this speaks of the affront to David about the honor and glory of God and the reality of evil. You see, Jesus came in telling this parable. He's, he's, there's a judgment that's coming on the people of Israel. We often think it's about the second coming, but no, there's a coming that came. That some of the prophecies that Jesus speaks of of coming destruction and avenging of blood would come upon Israel. And they did in AD 70. And the Roman army basically wiped out the Jewish nation. They destroyed and sacked Jerusalem. They burnt the temple. And it was the end of Israel as a nation until the middle of last century in terms of possessing and living in the land. And that was the people of God. And this is what Jesus is predicting. And in light of this, Peter says we're to live holy and godly lives. Guarding our hearts, praying, waiting in faith for His return and the fulfillment of the promise. Knowing, I would suggest, resting in the reality that God loves us and and calls us to this relationship through prayer where we would walk with Him knowing that He's a just God, that we can entrust to Him the battle, knowing that He's a God who encourages in our hearts to persevere as we pray together. As we pray together, becoming a praying praying people, I believe. And I think there's a call upon us. I've got a little video clip that maybe reinforces some of what I shared. I found it encouraging. I want to finish with a little story um, that I've been reminded of and been uh, reflecting, reading around a little bit. And I read about this many years ago. Um, Lynn, did you get to the Hebrides? Not quite. So, off the coast of Scotland, there was a revival in the Hebrides. And at the, at the centre of that revival, or at least the lead up to it, were two ladies, two sisters, Peggy and Christine Smith. And they were um, kind of broken over the state of the church, broken over the state of young people who didn't seem interested in the church. And uh, what was going on in the world, remember, a world war had just finished and the repercussions of that. Peggy was 84 and she was blind. And her sister was racked with arthritis and could hardly move. And they barely left their cottage. They were unable to get to church. But boy, could they pray. And they prayed. And they prayed into this sense of indifference among even the Christians and the worldliness. And God gave them a promise out of the book of Isaiah. I will pour water on the thirsty land. 
and streams on the dry ground. And so they called the the pastor and the church to pray because they they felt this promise was of God. And so they started to pray twice a week through the night for 18 months. Who's still turning up? And then one night, one of the prayer meetings, one of the men stood up and prayed from the, um, the Psalms, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place but He who has clean hands? And people were broken over their own uncleanness and lack of holiness. And there was a spark that came that lasted for almost three years. And it was sent about around a man called Duncan Campbell, who these ladies knew God was calling, sent the message, and he said no. And two weeks later he was there and he led the revival for the best part of two years. And people would just meet God everywhere. In fact, one minister wrote, you met God on meadow and moorland. You met him in the homes of people. God seemed to be everywhere. And still there seems a lingering effect in that part of the world, which is quite remote, of this experience of God. The Lord spoke to Solomon upon his, the transition from David to Solomon and the building of the temple. And as they dedicated the temple, and the people came before God because it wasn't a good time, He appeared to Solomon and said, I've heard your prayer, have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And when I shut up heaven, there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. See, this is coming. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And I think the promise stands today that we would be a people who pray, who persevere, who humble ourselves, who put away our selfish ways and cry out to Him. It's the old, old story. It's not fashionable because it doesn't bring quick results. But it's the ways of God and it's for the glory of God. And I think whatever God's going to do amongst us in this season, It's going to be birthed in people who pray together. I've invited some of the men and spoke to some of the ladies to say, find a friend, get together with one person and connect deeply and pray together. And that becomes a building block. That hopefully you'll pray with your spouse if you're married, with your family if you have one, and and then others in the community. And I think the Lord wants to birth a, a life of prayer among us that that starts with each one of us and builds as we risk with each other. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst, says the Lord Jesus. So let us pray. Gracious God, merciful, loving judge of the earth, we look to you and we come before you and we want to lay our lives, our homes, our relationships, our careers, our futures at your feet. And be a people who are here for you and for your glory. For whatever you would want to do amongst us, Lord. 
and that you would nurture in us a life of prayer, O God. Change our hearts, Lord, because we're hardened to this at times and we struggle and we give up too easily. And Lord, may it flow not from a sense of ought to or burden or pressure, but because we're so in love with you, Lord. We're so touched around this table by the the goodness that you have shown us. We're so blessed by the, the experience of the Spirit and the outpouring of a Father's love that we can do nothing less than give our whole lives back to you. So birth prayer in us, Lord, changes in this respect. Give us boldness, give us courage, grant us confidence, Lord, and touch our hearts with the things that break yours, Lord, in this world. Give us eyes to see, O God, we ask. And hearts to respond. And may your glory fall once again, Lord. May may your presence so descend upon this community that many would come to know of your saving grace. And that lives will be changed. The addicted will be set free. The homeless would find community and purpose. The broken would be restored. There would be this planting of the Lord for the display of your splendor, as the prophet says. And the cry to you would ascend. May our prayers indeed be like incense, a sweet aroma to you, Father, coming from our hearts, imbued with the power of the Holy Spirit. According to your will, we pray. Amen.